Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBTQ plus experience. My guest today is David Cope, a former pro football player and the first prominent athlete to come out as gay. He came out in a newspaper issue in December 1975. I was 23 and a former college athlete struggling with my attraction to men. After reading Dave's interview, I wrote him a letter asking for advice. He asked me out for drinks and became my mentor. 45 years later, we're still close. Dave, thank you for joining us here today. I'm glad you're here with me, and I think maybe um, people will learn something about difficulties of uh, both before and after a career in the National Football League, and also what happens when someone speaks out in the, the newspaper, especially if it's a, a little a subject that was, had been always hidden, the fact that there could possibly be a gay player or two or three or 10 or 20, who knows how many. But certainly uh, on the Washington Redskins, there was Jerry Smith and myself, and we were charter members. So I'm going to just review very briefly Dave's life for the audience, for those who don't know it. Uh, he grew up in Southern California. He played college football at the University of Washington. And then he enjoyed a nine-year NFL career as a running back with five teams in San Francisco, Detroit, Washington, New Orleans, and Green Bay. He finally retired in 1973 and came out in 1975. Well, they retired me. I wasn't ready to quit at that point. <laughs> well, thank God they did, given the concussion problems that have occurred. Well, that's true. But by then, uh, I'm sure the, all the concussion um, the damage had been done. The, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I, so I was I was asked by a, a doctor up in the University of Washington and um, Dr. Elaine Peskin about. Um, she once asked me how many um, how many times did you see stars, or had a um, when you were playing, and I started laughing. She said, what are you laughing about? I says, we saw stars almost all the time. I mean, it was it could have been hundreds of times. Um, certainly, um, was, that, was that a concussion? And she said, well, it depends on the severity of it. But yes, those were concussions. So I think the helmets that they're developing now, hopefully, are a hell of a lot better than what had been developed before. Well, so Dave came out at 33 in 1975, and when he did, he was the first prominent athlete and the first male athlete in a major sport ever to do that. So we're going to cover that period briefly before we jump to today, but Dave, you John know... John Brody named me Psyche um, in those, when I first began, and that's kind of what it took uh, for me coming out. You I were called say. Psyche? That was my, Psycho that, or Psyche? No, Psyche. Uh -huh. It was an endearing term. Uh -huh because uh, I was a rookie free agent with the 49ers, one of 50 free agents that went to camp in 1964. I should have been drafted. I could not believe I wasn't drafted, and it took me years to get any um, money uh, eventually. And, and even then, I think my top salary was like maybe $22,000. My God, it was a different in, era. Oh, a different, a totally different. So what prompted you to take the risk and to come out when you did. I mean, it was clearly not going to be easy, you know, at a time when homosexuality was still being demonized and sodomy was illegal in almost every state. Well, that's that's why I, I had the opportunity and, and, and I took it. It was kind of like me running down and breaking the wedge on the football team when the, the wedge is the four guys uh, that protect the runner when they after a kickoff. Right. I thought people would get enlightened. That didn't happen right away. 
I was criticized terribly in the press. Mm -hmm. This misfit, someone called me, or this arrogant uh, fool. I mean, it, it was really, it was really horrible. Was it all negative reaction? Well, your letter was certainly not negative reaction to me. Amongst the thousands of letters that I eventually got, you listened to them, and people were crying out for space to be, to be, to be alive, to live, to 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 love, to be happy. And um, maybe I should, uh, you know, expand on that a little bit. So I, I was living in D.C. in my first job. I was miserable. I didn't know I could be gay. I played football, and I didn't see myself reflected in any of the stereotypes, you know, hairdressers and florists, no disrespect. Um, so I thought, I'm not gay. I'm just having crushes on guys. And then I go to work in my first job, and I see this newspaper article on the stand on Pennsylvania Avenue in December 1975. In the Washington Star, now defunct. I can Lynn, see it like it was yesterday. I can see. Same here. It's unbelievable. Lynn Rossellini was the sports writer, and she had a three-part series on homosexuality in sports, which back then was groundbreaking. Nobody did that. And I look at the headline. It was Dave Cope, former Washington Redskin, comes out. And I'm like, holy crap. There's an athlete, and he's gay. Maybe that means I'm gay. So I wrote him a letter, care of that journalist. They forwarded it. I didn't know if he'd ever respond. I was like, help, I, I'm an athlete, I might be gay, I have no idea what to do. If you ever get a moment, good luck, congratulations, you've got a lot on your plate, but I'd love to hear from you. And two weeks later, I'm napping in my one-bedroom apartment in Georgetown on a gray Saturday afternoon, the phone rings, and I answer it, and it's Dave Cope. He looked up my number and invited me out for a drink, and I'm like, holy crap. So we went out for drinks, and your co-author Perry Dean Young came into the bar, and we, and that was the first time I saw that you could be, forgive me, but a kind of a normal person, you know, and <laughs> and be gay and be happy. So one month later, I told my first friend, I think I'm gay, and so it was really due to you. And so you said my letter came. What what caused you to respond to it? Well, it was such a, um, it was such a powerful letter. It was. Um... It was short, and that's not what, me. I'm never short. No. <laughs> but when it, when you said what a long, cruel struggle it's been, I want to go out and cream somebody. I thought, here's a guy who's kind of like me, and that's kind of like I wanted to. Football was a relief for me because I was out there, knocking uh, people down and and getting the frustrations out of me that that were coming all the time, that you'd hear from so many people, including your own family, which was always heartbreaking. I eventually, um, with that article with Lynn Rosalini, the, it, went, it went national, and um, my mother didn't know it was going to happen. And she was just totally devastated. She, she said, I created you. I could kill you. And it was really, that was like a dagger in my heart. But I knew that was totally bullshit. <laughs> There was no way, I don't know if she ever really came around, but I always knew that she loved me because yeah. of her strong feelings too. Right. And I hadn't known that before. Really? Yeah, I didn't really understand that because it was something that was so personal and so close to me that that's what it takes when you love people, yeah. you know? How many, how many letters and messages would you say you got from people like me reaching out saying, I'm a closeted gay or lesbian athlete, and you give me hope? 
It was thousands. Mm -hmm. That was the way people responded in those days. It was with you know letters. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't the internet or the calls or right. uh, it, it was with letters. Yeah, and they all went to the the newspapers. And the newspapers, it, yeah. yeah. I'd been interviewed by you know people for football accomplishments and things like that. So when David Suskind called and asked me to come to his show, mm -hmm. it was incredibly scary because I knew that it never had been done before. Well, you became a gay spokesperson overnight. You were on Literally, literally overnight. Yeah. That, I, I, I saw that was a short video clip in black and white of you on that program. Right. I mean, people like eventually Martina and Billie Jean King right. and... Greg Luganis. Yeah, all those people that I'd be in contact with. And God, I needed that. I needed to be picked up. That affirmation? Yeah. I'm sorry, I get really emotional lately. It's okay, and, um, Dave. And it's, um, it's both uh, painful and joyful. And I think it's more joyful. Well, one thing I can say about you, Dave, is you appreciate the people in your life, the people that have been loyal to you, the people that support you. You've never stopped being a good friend to them, to us. Uh, well, thank you. You tried to get a job in coaching. Right. Forget about shut, that. You were shut out. Not even, not even answer any. You know, not even almost an answer from people. You know. What did I, that feel like? I felt like I was in a hole and couldn't get out. But I knew I could get out somehow. I was going to get out. Well, football had been your whole life to that point, right? Right. Right. I really wasn't trained for a lot of other things, but I had been trained. I had been done interviews with sports writers about football and right. stuff. And I had learned to, to um, communicate. Mm -hmm. And I went to my uncle, who was my godfather. This was after a few years right. of struggling around the country and doing this and doing that. So uh, your uncle basically took you in, didn't he? Right. He was a very, very astute businessman. My uncle knew that I would be able to communicate to all the production designers and set decorators and media people with the studios. Well, maybe you should describe what the business was. It was a floor covering business, uh, Linoleum City in Hollywood. And um, it's still there and it's still running like the Jesus. You know, it's, so how, how old is the business? Oh, the business is um, probably since 1948. Wow. It's an amazing place. It kind of now takes up the block. Mm -hmm. So you got taken in and basically given a beginning role, right? You had to right. learn the ropes. I had no experience in, uh, I, I'd sold cars and mm -hmm. I, that fell through. A lot of times retired athletes, especially athletes who have played as long as I had, could get a job in the liquor industry, you know, right. selling beer or, or, um, or um, bourbon or, right. or something. But the fact that you'd come out kind of ruined that, didn't it? Well, it, it no, it, it actually, uh, William Oma K. Ford in um, San Francisco, People did show up after I um, came out. It was good. What was Ford? It was William O. McKay Ford. Oh, Ford Ford, Ford Company. Yeah, right. okay. and I sold cars for a while. But when I got a chance to have a real job, a steady job, that changed my life around because I really felt pur purposeful. And everybody was celebrating the fact that all these production designers and set decorators and people in general knew that I... Because I had done interviews here in, right. in Los Angeles, and they'd come in and see me at Linoleum City and look for a floor, and, and I'd sell them one, and then I'd get um, 
my installers to um, <coughs> the installers at the store, mostly Latin fellows. Yeah. But in that sense, being gay kind of helped, didn't it? Right. And, that, and then it turned around. Yeah. It turned around big time. So you spent the next, you know, let's 30, say 30 years. years basically helping your uncle run the business. Right. Until he had a heart attack and died. And, uh, and I was just one of the clogs or one of the main people, uh, family people. Right. There was a couple of brother-in-laws that worked there and my cousin Fred worked there. But I, I want to be very clear, though. Essentially, you ended up on that path because you're never given an opportunity to be associated with the league. Absolutely. That, I really wanted to coach football So then, I loved the yeah. game. So then in 1977, you and Perry Dean Young published a, a biography, The David Cope Story, right. which became a bestseller. Right. Tell us about that. I have a lot of problem with my memory and cognitive impairment. Sure. But um, Perry wrote me a letter mm -hmm. and I answered it and um, uh, and then we got together and I and, and he's I he was this real southern gentleman from North Carolina and really bright and he had done a couple of books already two of the missing was one of them about Sean Flynn Errol Flynn's son missing in action in Vietnam so he basically kind of ghost wrote your book for you right 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 yeah. and that came out in 77 and you know, I bought it, and everybody I knew bought it. You know, was it on like the bestseller list for the New York Times? That oh yeah, it yeah. made um, the bestseller list. I think it was as high as eight, and it, huh? and it meant it was on a long time. Right. You know, it's really quite an achievement too to to be contacted by the American Psychiatric Association and go speak to those folks, mm -hmm. and also to be or um, mm -hmm. the bar association and and go to go speak there. And um, to put together a a, a, a program and address, and address them, I, I really jumped at that chance. I, I went to Harvard, I went to Dartmouth, I went to so many schools, um, University you know, of Virginia. Something our uh, younger readers and younger listeners probably aren't aware of, but 1973 was the year you retired. But it was also the same year that the American Psychiatric Association finally took homosexuality out of its list of disorders, of, right. of, of cognitive disorders. Right. It was considered a disease until 1973. So your your retirement coincided with that, and you being invited to speak to them was pretty much a, a, a milestone. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, we you've been out of the limelight for a long time. Uh, out of the that, limelight, did you say? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, know, you oh, kind absolutely. of had your career, the, the attention is, you know, most, most younger uh -huh. people probably aren't aware of the Dave Cope story. But now at 77, you and we at Bammer have decided that your story, no longer in print, by the way, deserves to be heard by younger generations of LGTB people. We believe they need to know who one of their early gay heroes is and was. How do you feel about that? It's wonderful. I, um, when I moved here to um, my house in uh, Eagle Rock here in California, I, there was a young fella, young young youngster who lives across the street. Her mother uh, used to be associated with a gay and lesbian center. Mm -hmm. This was even before um, she wound up adopting with her husband, who um, was in the service. Anyhow, they adopted this young child uh, who turned out to be transgender. And um, me living across the street with having uh, my book and, and 
doing uh, interviews and doing things with the Los Angeles Times or whatever. And being a pathfinder. Right. She recognized, uh, he recognized that. And it's really important. You think we have struggles. Oh, I get it. When I did my book, you wouldn't believe how many people lined up that were transgendered. Yeah. It was, it was unbelievable. And the mail that I got, they knew that I was somehow making life a little bit better for them, too. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, really important. And um, when I'm struggling like this, I kind of went, when is this all going to stop? And, and the pain that you felt. And someone said, well, that's what makes it so important. <laughs> and that's so true. And, I, and who said that was someone of really, really substance and now that slipped away. Maybe it'll come back to me when I when we continue here or not. Well, the, the we hope for the day when that challenge and that struggle is no longer necessary. But, right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So there are several controversial issues I want to discuss with you today, Dave, which relate to fairness, representation, and responsibility in sports, you know, starting with football. You feel the NFL has been remiss in several ways. Number one, they never allowed you a spot in coaching. Number two, and we'll talk about Jerry in detail in a moment, He's never been inducted. Well, not necessarily a spot, but even an interview. Right, right. Jerry's never been inducted into the Hall of Fame, despite being one of the great all-time tight ends. The leading touchdown, you know, uh, receptions, 60, when he retired for 27 more years. Um, you know, so do you think the NFL's collective homophobia has diminished at all in, this, in the succeeding decades? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the fact that this past year, I finally had an invite to put me in the gay pride parade. They invited me yeah. to do it. So, I mean, that was like a little reaching out. Right. So maybe there's a chance, right. you know, maybe next year something like that could happen. I think you've also said that at the player level, homophobia is pretty much gone. gone. Right. It's I, more at the, at the coach and owner level. Right? I think that's true, yeah. mostly. Yeah. I'm sorry to say... Um, that the two two segments of the community of the player community, um, quite a few of the black players and um, most of the um, born again Christian players are very very homophobic, and that will continues into society. So if there were an out player now, he would have still have a problem on on most teams. I think so. Yes, but but you know what. If that player was dynamic, right. if he was Jerry Smith, for example, right. not Dave Copay. Right. Tell us about Jerry Smith. I mean, the, you know, assume that our listeners are mostly younger. They don't know who he is. Describe him, how you met him, what your relationship was, and how that ended. Well, he was from Arizona State, and um, Arizona State had great, great ball players. Um, so did Jerry go directly to the Redskins, or did he yes. play? Yeah. yeah, he went directly to the Redskins. I'm not sure what draft choice. Not a very high draft choice. Well, he was undersized for his position, right? Way undersized, yeah. yeah. Although 200-plus pounds. He used to um, fill his jockstrap as much as he could with um, maybe some small weights. <laughs> so that he could appear heavier like when he weighed in? pounds or something. <laughs> we didn't have a towel yeah. around him to... 
Yeah, he he barely weighed 205 pounds. But he despite was, that, he was six foot three and he was playing tight ends and blocking people that were 280 and two, who knows how big. But know. it was fierce, right? He was fierce. He was inter- incredibly determined and, and a, just the most loving guy. He was a lot different than people would expect of um, an NFL tight end. I think if Jerry Smith wasn't with the Redskins, I could have gone into such a depression, suicidal. And if it wasn't for Jerry Smith, I wouldn't be on this planet today. Well, you were kind of uh, alert that there were some gay influences on the Redskins, including Jerry, right? Right, right. And so, and they loved Jerry. Oh, fuck. But they didn't know you were gay No. Yet. So what problem, happened? How did you meet when you joined the team? It was out in um, an early training camp, and Lombardi was trying to um, figure out who his guys were. And for the audience's sake, Vince Lombardi is an iconic, legendary coach who took the Green Bay Packers to several consecutive Super Bowl championships right. and then ended up coaching the Washington Redskins while you played. Right. What I didn't know about Vince Lombardi for many, many years is that he had a gay brother ah. and loved his gay brother dearly and was couldn't give a damn about anybody sexual. It's how you treated people. And played football. Right, right. And how you played ball. He was amazing. There were so many people in the Redskins front office um, are substantial people uh, that he was as closest he could be with David Slattery, assistant uh, vice president of the team, who was a, um, a decorated war hero, and Joe Blair. So and these guys were all closeted gays in the, in the in, team in, management and in, in, in the, with the Redskins, right? Yeah. And so I'm sure that that doesn't wasn't unique to just the one NFL team. I'm right. sure there's other teams, right? And I, looking back on it, I remember. Exactly. Uh, over my years, I had six different teams. I've seen people, too, that I certainly, um, my radar was up on it, and um, uh, or gaydar, excuse yeah. me. Anyhow, it So was, you meet Jerry. How did you guys end up having a, your, your fling? Well, it was kind of an, it was definitely an accident, and it was only because Joe Blair was letting us stay in his guest room out in Silver Springs, Maryland. And Joe Blair, of course, Loved both of us. He didn't love us in a physical sort sure. of way, uh, but he, he he cared about us. He knew about how empty his own life was. He, he was the kind of person that would work his ass off for 20 hours if it could get his mind off of other things, you know what well, I mean? Well, and you had to be closeted in those days. Yeah, right. It was, and so he, um, when he found us, although he never, you know, um, I'm sure he, um, he felt terrible about um what happened with uh, Ray McDonald, who um, it was really the Redskins' of own lack of um, awareness in, in drafting a guy that high. Ray McDonald was an All-American at University of Idaho. He was a great track star, high hurdler. What happened? Six foot three, 250 pounds. There weren't any running backs that were that big at, in those days anywhere else. But the Redskins gave him a chance. And then when he got caught, um, fooling around in the the park right across from the White House with with a guy with a guy yeah that was the, <clears throat> then the end of um, they had to get they had to let him go. So you and he were staying overnight at Ray's uh, at at, um, at Joe Blair's house. Joe Blair's house and what happened? We were and I we went to bed and there was two um, twin beds in um, one of Joe's um, bedrooms. And I got in bed and was, I thought it was good night. You know, we'd been out partying. Luckily, 
it was a night too that could have been a total disaster. In those days, drinking and driving wasn't near as emphasized as it is today. Right. We were we were in Georgetown all after late afternoon and and having a few drinks and dinner and whatever, and then after dinner drinks and. Jerry was driving and he was a little bit all over the road and I got pulled over. Jerry Smith, come, what the hell are you doing? Just sit there and follow me. I'm taking you to your where were you going? So he escorted you home. He escorted with the light. <laughs> the perks of being famous for Jerry, not for me. I would, I'd have been dead. Well, you thank know, God it was him driving. For the for those who don't know, Jerry, and you, there are some documentaries that talk, that include and him. He was handsome. As he you was could handsome, be. all American, wheat blonde hair, kind of long hair back in the seventies. He was just your rugged, handsome icon, right? Right. And yet, gayer than a than a hoot owl. Right. That's an expression. And a great bottom. <laughs> and a great bottom. So you guys end up back there. What did he climb in bed with? <clears throat> yes. You know, for a moment, it was like, oh, I. It it was it was it just wasn't going to work. The chemistry wasn't there. It, there was yeah the the physical chemistry yeah, yeah. wasn't there. The emotional chemistry yeah was off the charts. You right. know, and sometimes you think you can make that work. Yeah, I I thought I could make that work with my wife. Yeah, and and it never worked. Yeah. I wasn't married at that time, yeah. but later on when I did marry her, and she knew all about everything. How long were you married? I didn't even realize that. I'd forgotten. I was married a few years. I um, before you came out. Yes. Yeah. So basically, you and Je and Jerry Smith became really close friends. You didn't hit it off chemically, you know, chemistry-wise, sexually. But then you came out, out two years after you retired. And you told me that the rumors are wrong. I, I had always heard that Jerry distanced himself from you because he didn't want to be seen as gay and you've been out. That wasn't the case? No, not at all. Not at all. He um, understood why I had to be quiet. And um, and reserved, and understood the need for me to speak out and not. But it, it was, put him it at was risk. something. He was really proud of it. He was he was joyful about what I did. Mm -hmm. He wasn't angry at all with yeah. me. At least he never ever communicated that to me. And you know, I I didn't stay in Washington D.C. at all. I was living in other places. So his career continued. And but the irony is, you were the guy who came out and took that risk. Jerry was understandably reluctant to do so, did everything he could to remain closeted, and then lo and behold, he contracts AIDS and dies in 1986, and the whole world found out. So Jerry was the leading tight end of his era. He had the most number of touchdown receptions. The record lasted for 27 years after he retired, 60, and yet today he's still not inducted in the NFL's Hall of Fame. What's your take on that? Pitiful. Pitiful. Roger Goodell needs to get moving on that right away. Why do you think there's no movement, no support to rectify that injustice? I don't know. Go ask Sonny Jurgensen if he belonged in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Go ask Billy Kilmer if he belonged in the Hall of Fame. Go ask Charlie Taylor if he belonged in the... Go ask anybody in the National Football League that covered him in those years. Yeah. He belongs in the Hall of Fame, Roger Goodell. Yeah. Put him in the Hall of Fame, right. okay? So switching gears again, incidents of bone-rattling hits. You've described seeing stars at times. 
have resulted in you, your case, and in many other veterans in uh, concussion syndrome, CTE, cognitive impairment, call it what you will, uh, with side effects ranging from mood swings, loss of short-term memory, uh, irrational bouts of anger, uh, just, you know, just an entirely wide range of anxiety and depression, and, and all because you did something for nine years that benefited millions of followers and the league's coffers. It benefited us too, don't get me wrong, the players who played, but we played for so little in those days, it was really the love of the game. You said the, the most you ever made was 22,000? $22, $22,000 with the Green Bay Packers. And today I, he'd be making 1972, millions. yes. Yeah. As so, much as I was playing in the Green Bay, if I was playing that much today, I'd be making millions of dollars. Yeah. Not that you're complaining. You no, no, no. I do it all again. Yeah. I, I absolutely love the game. Can you describe when you first began to notice these symptoms of uh, cognitive impairment? I knew something was a little bit wrong when I um, visited um, Dr. Elaine Peskin up at the University of Washington. This, this was about when, would you say? When I first moved up there, which was when I... About when I retired. Well, I, th I thought you said it was around 2004. It was much earlier. 2008. Oh, 2008. Okay. Yeah. So basically for a decade plus, you've been suffering this. And many of your friends have the same symptoms, yes? It's, oh, it's much more than a decade yeah. that I've been, it's since yeah. I retired. There was retired times, from your business. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't my business. It was my Uncle Bill's, right. my, my cousin Fred's business. Right. So I want to frame this, though, for our listeners. About... Seven years ago, the NFL agreed to a settlement to pay $765 million, which has now grown to be more than a billion, and there's no cap on the upside, to be dedicated to the medical costs and recovery of those veterans who incurred I had no idea that it was that much money, um, Mike, and also uh, I did have a know it was a lot of money, but I still can't understand why they can't be more fair with the guys who were suffering in, in my era. So basically, they dedicated this money, but they never acknowledged any responsibility for the right. for this the ailments, right? Actually, they have somewhat showed a little responsibility because they really changed the way you can play football. Right. You have to you have to play play more now with your he, your shoulder than your head. Right. We used to play with our heads. Right. Making sure that you never missed a block or missed a tackle or did anything, because if you went in head first, chances one of your shoulders would get through and or your head. You call that head hunting, right? Yes, it was pretty, pretty extreme. Well, would you say that most of the veterans that you've remained in touch with over the years have suffered from the same problem? Yes, they might not have really recognized it themselves. I think I read that something like 10,000 people <coughs> filed for settlement, but only maybe 1,000 or 2,000 were accepted. And my sense from you is that most of the people you know with these problems never got a penny. Is that fair? I would say it's um, fair, yes. Yeah. And when in reading about this, and who knows the reality of it, they say a, much of the money went to legal settlements. Some of it was held back for various you know reasons, but... There needs to be more of this money reaching the people for whom it was intended. Would you That's say? Right. Yeah. That's right. Or the, or, or the benefactors of, of the person that has moved on. Right. Um, so moving beyond the concussion issue, one of the biggest stories in sports-related news the last several years has been the decision <laughs> by former San Francisco quarterback Colin Kaepernick 
to refuse to stand during the playing of the national anthem that starts every NFL football game. And it's become extremely controversial. But in any event, he's unofficially been blackballed by the league. At least he's not been given a serious opportunity to play, even though he's proven that he still has the ability. I'm sure he's young enough that he could still get in the league and perform and perform well, if not as a starting quarterback, certainly as a backup quarterback. Mm. I'm sure, I, I don't know his intention, but I would think it's still in his blood. I don't know how old he is right now, um, but I, I just... I think he's 33 or 34, if I remember correctly. Well, there's a lot of great quarterbacks, yeah. and they kind of even start their journey yeah. at that age. Well, the whole idea of athlete activism, you know, that those who play sports have the right, perhaps even a responsibility, to use their influence <sighs> and be vocal about their non-football issues, about non-football issues, you know, this has been under the spotlight as a result of this. Well, that's why we're doing this interview, because of my sexuality and right. non-football issues. You know? Well, there's a direct line from you to Colin. Right. You've both been excluded for for being different, for speaking your mind. Well, I certainly never, ever got a, even a sniff at a, a coaching opportunity or a scouting opportunity or anything. And, 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 and when you... When you were getting rejected at that level, you certainly thought you would never have a chance at the college level. In fact, my older brother, who's passed on now, kind of blamed me for ending his career because when he was coaching at UCLA, Tommy Prothrow, he even had difficult times getting the head, the, like the coordinator's position, a defensive coordinator or mm -hmm. the offensive coordinator, because there would be too much... Um, attention to the last name Copay. Oh, you're his brother. Yeah. And um, there's not another Copay. Yeah. It was a, Copay is a, a derivative of Kopitich, Kopitich, a Yugoslav is, is Croatian. Is your brother who was homophobic? Yeah, Tony was homophobic and he was homophobic um, to the day he died, sorry to say, even though, even though there was times he was very uh, loving to me. <laughs> How do you feel about what Colin's been doing? You know, what's your opinion about athletes speaking their mind on non-football issues? I wish he was a little bit more angry, to tell you the truth. I think he needs to get in there and fight more. Mm -hmm. And um, if I if I knew him, and if he heard this, or even if someone wanted to tell him that, um, I think he was a great, not good. He was a great competitor. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he wasn't as good as you need to be to, to really um, maybe play the entire year um, at quarterback. But I think he, if he had a couple of years in a row, I still think he's quite old enough or not young enough right. to hold the job and play. If you had one overriding message for the NFL, based on what we've highlighted about their treatment of you, their treatment of Jerry Smith, their response to the concussion syndrome issue, their treatment of Colin. Do you have any question? Any Start to treat their own a little bit better than we were treated. Right. Just, just really start paying attention. Right. Do you continue to be contacted by closeted athletes? You know, I do. I, I, I get, not necessarily athletes. I, 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 I do continue to get letters from time to time that were sent to Linoleum City, for example, and they were forwarded from my cousin over there. Uh, 
and, and the guys who work there. I'll call them or, or, or have a word for them um, from time to time. Right. What do you tell them? I, I'm, I'm just telling them, to, you know, we all need to fight the good fight. You know, we just, you need to, you need to carry on and you have to carry on the best way you can. I know you've arranged to leave your estate to your alma mater, the University of Washington. What do you hope they'll do with those resources? They, they just need to pay attention more and fund the Q Center. The Q Center is the, the gay, gay or queer center. Yeah, right? Yeah. right, the queer center, right. And there's queer centers at other schools too. Well, they came, if I'm not mistaken, and took a lot of your memorabilia recently, right, since you're moving. Well, the University of Washington in, in itself, not not just the Q, the Q Center did not, no. Right. But the library, the, the sciences, yeah. they were very, very um, appreciative. It's an educational experience seeing um, my bulletin boards that I've had. I had these maybe three foot by four foot cork bulletin boards with pictures from the past, fun pictures, no, nothing uh, distasteful so you can do. I'm staying with you in your home this week as you prepare <laughs> to sell it and to move into an assisted living facility nearby you know, at a younger age than you normally might because of the CTE, right? Well, the, considering the fact that I buried my mom, she was moved into that place for, not that, not that, not that place, she moved into Solheim um, at 100 years old, and she moved into not assisted living, but residential living. Wow. <laughs> There's residential. some longevity in your family. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> and her mother lived, you know, well into her, you know, very close to 100, you know? And her sisters and stuff lived into their 90s and 80s, you know. So mom is, um, I'm sure, smiling wherever she is. And I know it's in heaven. So so one of the last questions I want to ask you, do you regret playing football? What do you think will happen, should happen, to the game of football? I'm going to interrupt you right now. I, I don't regret playing football for a minute. It was... It was the love of my life when I was playing touch football at the Croatian Junior Seminary when I had no business in the world going to a seminary out of grade school as a freshman in high school. And actually was the first time I was ever really exposed to anything gay was because of a priest there who was the head rector who made me his right-hand man. Now it was always a totally proper sort of way, but the love I felt from that man was more than, my parents were never really close, close, hands-on, physical, you know, but they were very loving. But it was that kind of love. A, a genuine, non-physical love. Right. Yeah. And never, luckily, uh, um, and God knows there's been lots of tragic episodes with priests, but um, it certainly was not that way at, at the Christian well, Perhaps that's Center. why you're still a person of faith. Wow. Right. Thanks, Mike. That's uh... So I want to thank you for being my friend, my mentor, my collaborator. For those who don't know, Dave uh, agreed to go on the advisory board of Athlete Ally, where I was the founding board chair seven years ago, which works to make sports more welcoming and inclusive of LGBTQ athletes. And you're on the advisory board of Bammer. I was really lucky to have you become part of my life, Dave. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that you were as feisty as I was and um, 
we're both here talking with kind of hoarse voices <laughs> with the kind of um, the flu that's been going around and, and we're kind of getting through this, you know? Well, I flew to LA in 2,500 miles to get this interview and I wasn't gonna let anything stop me. <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, it's wonderful to have had you in my life. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bammer and Me. We will be reissuing David Cope's groundbreaking and best-selling autobiography later this year, and we look forward to sharing more of the story there. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nicolon. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.